Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, the U.S. Capitol and the state of North Carolina come up with an elegant solution to the Confederate monument controversy when they replace the statue of a white supremacist with the statue of Billy Graham. Also on today's program, have you ever signed your name to a petition for a cause that you believed in? Well, you may have just given that group permission to share your contact information with the world. We also have the latest installment in our Generous Living series. This week, the story of a couple whose generosity has helped to reinvigorate one of Los Angeles County's poorest towns. Well, speaking of Los Angeles, we begin today with news that the city of Los Angeles has issued John MacArthur and Grace Community Church a cease and desist letter threatening a $1,000 fine or arrest for continuing to hold in-person church services in defiance of the state orders. Now, MacArthur and Grace Community Church have secured attorneys Jenna Ellis and Charles Lamondry of the Thomas More Society as legal counsel. Grace Community Church began holding regular services a couple of weeks ago, July 26. We re- previously reported on that in Ministry Watch. Uh, the video stream, though, of the service showed people singing and sitting near each other, many without masks. The church chose to hold unrestricted services after issuing a statement from John MacArthur and the elders on July 24th, a couple of days earlier, explaining their decision. The statement said that Grace Community Church has always stood steadfast on biblical principles. It asserted that the government is charged with protecting civil order and well-being, and that insofar as government authorities do not attempt to assert ecclesiastical authority or issue orders, that forbid our obedience to God's law, their authority is to be obeyed, whether we agree with the rulings or not. But MacArthur also said, God has not granted civil rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. And the church statement comes amid a new round of closures in effect in California as COVID-19 cases have surged during the summer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom in mid-July once again shut down bars and indoor dining uh, across more than 30 counties in the state. Closures include indoor church services gyms, nail salons, and malls. The L.A. Department of Public Health told Religion News Service that they would investigate MacArthur and his church and reach out to the church after disobeying the state orders. Now, turning our attention overseas, there's a charity founded by Renee Bach, an American missionary from Virginia. It's been shut down recently, and she's accused of contributing to the deaths of more than 100 children in Uganda. Yeah, the NGO, non-governmental organization, Serving His Children, it's what we would call a Christian ministry here in this country, aimed to provide malnutrition care in the eastern districts of Uganda, but it was dissolved on July the 18th because Bach, who had come to Uganda supposedly to save kids from malnutrition when she was 19 years old, about 10 years earlier, um, had 
been providing, according to authorities, medical care without actually having the medical licenses in order to do that. Now, Renee Bach had been raising funds from her evangelical church in Virginia, and she had also been attracting a following through her blog, a blog that had become popular in the evangelical community. Serving his children had been popular in Uganda when she first started the ministry, uh, but again, as I said, she was accused of sort of practicing medicine without a license, contributing to the deaths of 105 children. Former employees alleged that Bach performed medical procedures on the children, including blood transfusions. The procedures were said to have resulted in fatalities. In fact, two of the mothers who lost children took Bach to court in January of last year, 2019. That was the first time that the world got a chance to see what was going on there. Uh, Bach maintains that the children who died in her care were already gravely ill, many of them severely malnutrition, when they arrived at her facility, and she was just simply not able to save them. But the court ruled against her in these two cases, forced her to make a cash payment to the mothers of the dead children, and the negative publicity from the cases has caused her U.S. support to virtually evaporate. Now, Warren, we have another story with international implications, and this one we've reported on before. Yeah, we have. Um, it's uh, In some ways, that's a U.S. story. The state of California is involved. They refiled charges about a megachurch leader, Nason Joaquin Garcia. Uh, they refiled those charges last week for child rape and human trafficking. Now, Garcia was already in custody after a court dropped previous allegations due to prosecution errors just a couple of months earlier. That's the story that we reported uh, here on Ministry Watch a couple of weeks ago. 51-year-old Garcia has denied any wrongdoing, but he and two others, 25-year-old Susana Medina Wakaka and 37-year-old Alondro Ocampo, are being charged with three dozen felony counts. Now, I should add that Garcia is a self-proclaimed apostle and the leader of a group, some would call it a cult, called La Luz del Mundo. That's Spanish for light of the world. It's a Mexican evangelical church that claims to have five million followers worldwide. But prosecutors say that Garcia and the other two charged in the case, in fact, committed sex crimes and produced child pornography involving at least five women and girls uh, between 2015 and 2018. That happened in Los Angeles County, and that's why they're able to charge them there. Garcia is being held on a huge bail, $50 million, because apparently this cult has been able to accumulate tremendous resources over the years. Ocampo is being held on a $25 million bay, and Wakaka remains free on bail. When we return, controversies regarding Confederate monuments and white supremacy are still in the news. But in at least one case, there seems to be an elegant solution. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we'll be back after the short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. 
Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, an Alabama pastor and Republican state representative has resigned from his church because he spoke at an event honoring Nathan Bradford Forrest, a Confederate Army general and the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, Will Dismukes is this pastor's name. He stepped down as a bivocational pastor at Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Prattville, uh, Alabama, on July the 29th. That's according to the Alabama Baptist, the the denominational newspaper for Alabama. His resignation came three days after posting a photo of himself on Facebook standing at a podium near various Confederate flags and a picture of Nathan Bedford Forrest at an event in, ironically, Selma, Alabama. Um, Dismukes actions drew a swift rebuke from many, both Republicans and Democratic lawmakers, calling for him to resign, not just as pastor, but as state representative as well. But so far, he's refused to do so. The controversy was intensified because the birthday party was held on the same weekend as friends and family were gathering at ceremonies in Selma to remember the late civil rights leader and U.S. Representative John Lewis. The longtime Georgia congressman and civil rights leader is known for being beaten in 1965 while leading a march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma on a day known as Bloody Sunday. Yeah, the optics for this couldn't have been worse for Dismukes. Uh, still, he responded to the controversy by saying that the Post in no way intended to seem that he was glorifying the Klan or any party thereof. At least that's what he told the Montgomery Advertiser. The very atrocities and actions they committed were disgrace to our country. But Terry Latham, who is the chairman of Dismukes' own party, the Alabama Republican Party, said that Dismukes' state did not go far enough in resolving the issue. Now, this situation continues unresolved, Warren, but another situation involving race and remembrance seems to have come to a somewhat more elegant solution. Yeah, that's right. A a life-sized statue of the Reverend Billy Graham is uh, headed to the U.S. Capitol. Uh, the U.S. Capitol has a, a statuary hall. It's a collection of statues, two per state, uh, from um, every single one of the states, all 50 states. And uh, last week, a North Carolina Legislative Committee approved a two-foot model of the statue depicting the famous evangelist who died, of course, in 2018. The sculptor is a man named Chaz Fagan, and he'll now begin working on the life-sized model that will have to be approved by a congressional committee, ultimately. But Fagan has previously created several statues of religious figures, including uh, uh, St. John Paul II for Washington's St. John Paul II National Shrine, as well as a statue of Mother Teresa for the Washington National Cathedral. So obviously he's got some experience in this area. The U.S. Capitol's Statuary Hall, if you've never been there, and as I just mentioned, contains 100 statues of prominent people, two from every state. Billy Graham, of course, is 
a North Carolina native born uh, on a dairy farm here in Charlotte, my hometown. And his statue will take the place of Charles Acock, who is a former governor of North Carolina, but was also one of the masterminds of the 1898 Wilmington race riot and coup in which a local government made up of black Americans was overthrown and replaced by white officials. Warren, I'd like to shift gears somewhat and let you talk a little bit about an interesting story by Steve Raby that you posted this week, a story about petitions, politics, and fundraising. Yeah, you know, I'm guessing, Natasha, that you may have gotten emails uh, from organizations, maybe even organizations that you agree with, asking you to sign a petition. The organizations usually promise that by signing the petition, you'll make a positive difference on maybe some piece of legislation or some other critical issue. Yes, I've definitely gotten those emails. Well, I have too, and I'm guessing a lot of our listeners have. Sometimes these uh, emails, and and you'll get them in the mail sometime as well, the the old-fashioned U.S. postal mail, uh, they look like official government documents. Uh, Our reporter, Steve Raby, found one that said, official petition to the United States Congress. Now, notice it doesn't say official petition of the United States Congress, but to the United States Congress. That kind of subtle language is pretty common in these kinds of petitions, so you do have to read them closely. And Steve's reporting also found out that many of these petitions are really just attempts to harvest your personal information so they can solicit you either then or later for funds. Uh, They'll sometimes even share your contact information with other organizations. That's why it's so important to read the small print, because that small print that I usually don't read, most people don't read, often gives the group the right to share your information. Uh, So if you you respond, you are de facto giving them, uh, giving your information away to potentially lots of other groups. So I would say even if you don't give money to organizations, the fact that you've responded Responded has value to the organization and others will eventually get your name and contact information. So that's why when I sign up for one thing, I often find myself being inundated with emails from a lot of other groups. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly what's happening. Well, is this illegal? Well, in most cases, it's not illegal um, because you are voluntarily filling out the form and giving them your name and information. And by sending it, by hitting that, you know, send or or uh, whatever the button is on there that, that um, uh, sends that information back, you are acknowledging, whether you mean to or not, that uh, they can do whatever they want with that information. Uh, The organizations that engage in this behavior, in fact, say, and I think to a certain extent they have a point, that um, they have no interest in wasting time or money sending emails and letters to people who are not interested in their message. So they claim that by uh, doing things in this way, they're just allowing people to identify that they are interested in whatever the message is. But it's important to know, too, that mass petitions rarely have an impact on public policy. If you really want to make a difference, write your congressman directly. Now, Natasha, years ago, I worked in a senator's office, a U.S. senator's office, Senator Sam Nunn from Georgia. And I can tell you that the senator did pay attention to the letters that we were getting from constituents. Uh, But I will also say that whenever they came in as form letters, he wasn't as interested. One sincere and informed letter from a constituent who wrote it personally is worth thousands of names on a petition that was generated in a web campaign. 
That's really good advice. And I should add that there is a lot more to this story. And if you want to find out more, just go to ministrywatch.com. Now we're going to take another break, but when we return, the next installment of our Generous Living series. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, before we get to our generous living story for this week, you've got a couple of quick notes about charity and philanthropy. Yeah, I do. Uh, A new study uh, reveals that an overwhelming majority of donors don't expect COVID-19 to curtail their charitable giving for the rest of the year. According to the report, about 85% of the donors surveyed online expect the amount that they give to charity to stay at last year's level or increase in the second half of 2020. The report is called Charitable Giving in the Wake of COVID-19 and also has good news for nonprofit leaders concerned that the wave of giving to COVID-19 relief could result in a decline in giving to their organizations. Um, fewer than one in 10 donors plan to shift support uh, from one cause to another because of the pandemic. It's more than seven out of 10 who gave to COVID-19 relief efforts consider those gifts to be over and above their regular giving. And there's some new information about the Paycheck Protection Plan and its impacts on nonprofits. Yeah, according to the Nonprofit Times, loans through the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, protected about 4.1 million nonprofit jobs, uh, almost one in three that work in the nonprofit sector nationwide. The publication's data came from an analysis by the Johnson Center at Grand Valley State University. And by the way, for our listeners, um, Grand Valley State University's Johnson Center uh, has become kind of a go-to source for me when it comes to nonprofit data, and I would really advise our listeners to check it out. Nonprofits received about 4% of all the loans under the PPP, with about 181,000 organizations receiving a loan out of more than five or almost 5 million total loans that were given out. And I should also mention that we have a list of the more than 400 evangelical Christian ministries that received at least a million dollars in PPP loans. We posted that list as our list of the month for August, Natasha, and I got to say it's kind of blown up our website. We had our biggest week ever in terms of page views this week, and it's mostly been because of that list. Now, we've organized the list of ministries by state, so you can pretty easily find the ones that are near you. Now, Warren, before we go, who are you profiling in Ministry Watch's Generous Living series for this week? 
Yeah, this week's story uh, features the long-term commitment to frugal living and generous giving by Tom and Bree Say. Now, in the 1990s, Tom was working for a company that you may have heard of called Earthlink. Oh, of course, I've heard of it. Uh, It's the internet company. Yeah, it is. And back in those days, the early to mid-90s, the company was just getting started. In fact, I think it was founded in 1994. And because it was so new and struggling and because this was just kind of the culture back in those days, they paid their employees often or at least partially in stock or stock options. Now, those stocks could have been worthless if the company hadn't taken off. But in fact, Earthlink went public. And in 1997, Tom Say overnight, literally, found himself a multimillionaire. But Tom and Bree didn't let all of that money get to their heads. Yeah, they didn't. Uh, a lot of their co-workers began, uh, you know, pulling into the parking lot in Mercedes Benzes and other luxury cars. But Tom continued to drive his 1991 three-cylinder Geo Metro. In fact, it wasn't until 10 years later that he upgraded his car. Uh, If you can imagine a millionaire driving around for a decade in a three-cylinder car, but he finally did uh, trade up to a Nissan Sentra. Now, Tom and his wife, Bree, have intentionally chosen uh, to find wealth in other things than possessions. Uh, Since they were first married, they committed to living on the national median household income, which right now in this country is uh, between $55,000 and $60,000 a year. Where they live in Los Angeles County is a little more than that. In fact, they live in Pomona, California, which is the second, at the time that they moved there, was the second poorest city in Los Angeles County. And they decided that they were going to pour all of their wealth into investing in people and the community around them. What motivated them to do that? Well, Tom said that he had heard a sermon on Isaiah 58, and it convicted him of God's love for the poor. And for those who don't have their Bible handy, Isaiah 58 talks about the importance of God's people providing food to the hungry and shelter to the homeless. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the Says decided to cap their income at that median salary and started giving away money that they made over and above that cap. That is a great story. And there's a lot more to it. You can read it for yourself and click through to the video of the Says speaking about their journey by going to ministrywatch.com. Now, Warren, we need to wrap up. Do you have any housekeeping items before we go? Yeah, I do have a couple today. In fact, more than a couple, actually. I I wanted to remind everyone of the list of ministries that I mentioned earlier. Uh, These are ministries that received Paycheck Protection Program funds. I also want to reiterate that our position here at Ministry Watch is that there is nothing wrong or dishonorable about taking these funds. But organizations that did take the funds had to affirm that they actually needed the funds. So this list is worth a closer look. I also want to remind everyone that at the beginning of each new month, uh, we post a list of the most popular stories for the previous month. So now you can go to our website and you can see the 10 most popular stories for the month of July right on the front page. Okay, so that's a couple. You said that you had more than a couple. 
<laughs> yeah, one more note to subscribers of this podcast. Starting next week, uh, we're going to be posting a second podcast episode every week. Natasha and I will continue uh, this weekly roundup of the week's Ministry Watch news, but the extra episode will be an interview with a writer or a ministry leader or someone with whom we have a reporting partnership with. Uh, my first guest, in fact, will be Paul Gladder, who is the editor of Religion Unplugged, the head of the journalism program at the King's College in New York City, and a longtime reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I'm really excited about adding this new feature, this second episode to the podcast, and I really hope you'll check it out. And finally, I'd like to remind you that there's a quick easy, and I should add, free way for you to support this program. And that's simply to rate us on your podcast app. The more ratings we have, the better the podcast performs with search engines. Uh, you can also leave a comment when you leave us a rating. Uh, I can't respond via the app, but I do want you to know that I read all the comments and I find them encouraging and helpful. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Yonat Shimron, Emily McFarlane Miller, Ann Stike, Steve Raby, John Semecula, Sean Hendrick, and Warren Smith. I'm Natasha Smith in Winston-Salem. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. May God bless you.